You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Hope here, continuing our mini-series in these social distancing times. Excited to be joined by a current fellow in the 2020 class out in Virginia. Leah's here. She has a background in public health, so we definitely want to start with that. So let's get to it. All right, Leah, tell us everything that we are getting wrong about public health right now. Ah, that is a very big question. <laughs> I mean, I think when I look at what's going on, I mean, I think what comes to mind is our public health system and our healthcare system are just going to be completely overwhelmed right now, whether that's from cuts that have happened in this administration or past administrations. I think we have dedicated people who are trying to do the best they can. We have not put up the public health infrastructure we need to be able to respond. And that's not just in terms of testing, but in terms of how we communicate information, how we help people understand, you know, how diseases spread within our communities. And so, we got, a, we got a lot of work to do both immediately to respond to this crisis, but also thinking about how do we invest in public health and how do we really make sure that for other crises or natural natural disasters that we're prepared and can respond in the way that we should be. And this does seem like a moment where folks see some opportunity to reimagine or reconsider a system of health in general public health, mental health, like sort of all the systems are probably on the table right now as we see how they've broken down and where the, the, the holes are. Many of them, we already knew where they were. If you could reimagine uh, a system right now that did public health a lot better, what are one or two priorities you feel like you would you would put first? I think you're right. I think this is a moment where, you know, out of the chaos comes an opportunity to think differently and try something new. I think if I reimagine the system. I would one want a system that prioritizes equity, not just talks about it, but has an intentional focus on making sure that our most vulnerable are served. I think what we're going to see is that while COVID will affect all of our lives, it's definitely going to disproportionately affect those who are living in poverty with low incomes or lose their jobs. And I think our system is not yet set up to respond in targeted ways to those groups. I think I'd also want a system where, you know, we just kind of reimagined also community engagement and how we communicate with different populations. I think right now, so much of what's happening is coming from the top down, but I, you know, think about people in my family or people who I know, and I look at the information they're getting or just bits and pieces of information and they're scared because they're not involved in these conversations information and the facts aren't reaching them. And I think we need to do a better job of figuring out what does it take to communicate with people effectively in times of crisis about their health? Where do they go? Who do they talk to? What precautions should they be taking? Um, so a better system for me would do a, do a much better job than that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, it's interesting with you being in the fellowship right now, and things will obviously change in terms of how you're meeting, but uh, hopefully we can still make meetings happen. Uh, maybe up to this point, what was the fellowship experience like? Anything surprise you about it? I don't know if I had any surprises. I think the best part has been my class. I am just fortunate to be in the class with so many neat people who are doing just really cool work all across Virginia in areas that I've never explored, whether that be criminal justice reform um, or even arts and culture. And so it's been really cool to see the lens at which they approach some of these issues. And then one thing I think is always interesting is when there's a statewide chapter and not necessarily rooted in just a city. So yeah, you mentioned this a little bit in your last answer, but what 
kind of things have you you learned because there are folks coming from all parts of the state rather than just maybe being in Richmond or just being in DC? Yeah. So actually our first weekend was in Abingdon, Virginia. And I can tell you before going there, I couldn't even point out where that was on a map. Um, so, I mean, I live in Alexandria, so I'm right up here in the Beltway. And I would just say the opportunity to go there and not to spend all day in a room, but to actually be like exploring different businesses in the community, meeting people who work at, I think, the local university and hearing about how issues from, you know, the different industries and how they've been impacted from like mining to furniture making and how, you know, economic development challenges are so different from, you know, the conversation we're having up here in Northern Virginia, or even talking about affordable housing and how that looks different for the two different regions in the state. And so I don't know, it's just very eye-opening that like some of these issues, I think we often put them in a very urban context or think only certain areas are dealing with them. And I think that experience really opened my eyes that so many different experiences and things are happening across the Commonwealth and we have to be thinking of solutions that aren't one size fits all, that really look at how do these issues from housing to transportation, how do they play out in the unique context of place? And what should we be doing differently to make sure that we're serving the needs of the people who live there? Yeah. We go back. I'll ask a little bit more about Virginia, a place I'm always very curious about, living out here on the West Coast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zach. We'll be right back. Yeah, thinking about Virginia and some of their moves statewide politically uh, in the midterms and, and even recently a little bit, what should folks who live out here in the coastal elite bubble in L.A., what should we understand about what's happening in your state politically? Yeah, um, I think people ha- were watching us closely, and then progressives <laughs> all around the country were excited about the blue wave that came through. And I think Virginia is really showing the difference that can be made when you have pro- progressive leaders in office. I mean, just a few months ago, we weren't able to even fathom, you know, common sense gun legislation or other reforms around housing, transportation, child care. And I think what we're seeing in this last, um, you know, last legislature is that a lot of the priorities that we have all been fighting for and talking about are finally either being made a reality or at least the conversation's changing. So I think it's a, it's a good time to be watching Virginia and seeing what we're doing and setting an example in that space. And it's always interesting when there's an LC Fellows class in a presidential election year. It definitely was interesting. I was actually leading the Institute in 2016. So, you know, we spent a good six months arguing about Hillary or Bernie, and little did we know none of it mattered because it was all going to be terrible by November. <laughs> um, so I was curious with such a larger field, pretty much from January, at least to, uh, you know, about the last couple of weeks, was that converse, were those conversations happening in your Fellows class or had you? It just seemed like folks were coalescing around just one or two candidates. What was the vibe like? Um, so I would say our first class was in January. So the race still had still had a few more people. Um, yeah. I don't think there was consensus around one or two candidates, but I think mm-hmm. there were still a lot of people who were seeing opportunities and excitement about some of the other folks who were in the field. I think what's been nice about NLC is it's felt like a safe space to be able to lift up well, why this candidate and why not that candidate? Or what could this candidate do differently in order to make them more appealing to me? Or what are the questions we need to be asking about our elected officials, their policies, and the ways that we want them to serve us and to serve the people that we've all set out to help? And so um, 
I think still there's a bit of division around the current two candidates, but I think if we can continue to ask those questions and continue to create spaces, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, put somebody forth who we can hold accountable and really ensure that their policies don't just resonate with part of the Democratic Party, but much more and even beyond our own party. Listen, thanks for, for coming on. Thanks for your insights on public health. I Hopefully that makes people feel a little bit more assured or at least have a more aspirational uh, lens on how we should go once things do get back to some semblance of normal. Hopefully that'll be soon. Thanks everyone for listening. Make sure if you want to catch all the episodes in our mini series here on the social distancing times we're in, get those at Apple Podcasts, Google, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. They're all there. And if you got plenty of time in your hands, we have over 200 plus episodes featuring other amazing progressives. You can download and listen to those as well. They're short and sweet, about seven to 10 minutes. Get to know some really cool folks and know that the country is in good hands if we let them be in charge. So let's do that. Until next time then, take care.